so we're back with the last episode of Ecotones for season one, and I'm back here with Mike, uh, my co-host <laughs> co from uh, the episode before last. I'm glad to have you back because uh, we're going to dig into the subject that I mentioned on the Zebra podcast, which is basically... The smash hit Ecotones <laughs> yeah. podcast, which has taken the nation by storm. <laughs> yeah. As I'm sure I don't have to tell our legion of listeners. <laughs> hey, uh, that's my mom and like four other people. <laughs> um, so we're gonna um, we're gonna get to dig into the subject of social networks in primates, as which, one does. Yeah. So for this episode, I sat down with Jess Gunson and uh, two of her colleagues, uh, Molly Worthington and Leah McIntyre, and the three of them were interns on the. Uwasu Neuro Baboon Project in Lycipia. And so um, I'm really excited to talk about not only some of the day-to-day -day work that they do in their interview that they kind of explain, but um, also just some random facts that I've picked up about baboons <laughs> over the last year or two that I'd love to get your perspective on because they're an insane animal. <laughs> and I am always happy to give my perspective, so... <laughs> I see no problem. <laughs> cool. It should be fun. We'll dive into their interview segment and um, cut back as we kind of find various tidbits to talk about. But welcome back, Mike. Good to be back, Pat. For those listening, this is Pat Milligan. I'm your host. And this is the last episode for season one of Ecotones. I'm Leah. My name is Leah. I have been here for almost exactly a year studying social behavior in olive baboons out on a ranch nearby, um, working for a couple of baboon projects that have been established for a few years. Um, the one we're working for is um, comparing behavior across different species of baboons, and so we're focusing on olive and then in other parts of Eastern Africa, they're looking at other species. Mm -hmm. Cool. So you guys all work on the same project. I'm Molly. So our boss collaborates with Shirley Strum, who has been running an olive baboon project in Kenya for over 30 years. Mm -hmm. And wow. so our boss has just been working with her for the last couple of years um, to kind of jump on and use this amazing database she has of demography and and like ranging information and ecological information to do more in-depth like social behavior. Um, yeah, right. so I'm Jess, I'm the new intern, uh, and I am currently in the training process, so I'm still learning a lot uh, about the bad things and about the project. So, um, well, so you guys, uh, travel around a fair bit to uh, study these baboons, right? So you have to go yeah. on to different properties? Well, so originally the baboons, they're from, do you know where they're from? Gilgil, I think. Gilgil up north. Um, but they were translocated like 30 years ago because of um, issues with the with predation and poaching and things up north with where they originated. So Shirley moved all the baboons like literally in cages just put them all in trucks and <laughs> brought them all down here and um, put them on the ranch where we're living now. So, so the so transplanting animals. You're you're gonna have to break this down for me because it, it sounds like you're you just pick up the animal and be like, no, animal, you can't live there anymore. This this place isn't right for you. You need to live over here now, an hour away. We're basically gonna move you from St. Petersburg to Tampa. Yeah, and that's it. Uh, that just doesn't feel like what scientists are supposed to do. It feels like they're supposed to like look don't touch but that seems very much look and touch and move somewhere else a couple hundred miles away so maybe you can help me with this yeah that is a reasonable first uh, response to have to this kind of a story but um what we often do in ecology experiments really in any sort of conservation experiment that manipulates populations is to move animals within their natural range so it's important to not take a troop of baboons and literally move them from 
East Africa into the Middle East or somewhere where they're not naturally supposed to be. Sure. But this is actually not that uncommon. So in Yellowstone Park um, in the United States, there were efforts to transplant wolves into the ecosystem and Mm -hmm. for somewhat different reasons than the Baboon Project. In the case of the Baboon Project, they wanted to put them into an area where they would be a little bit safer and also easier to, to study. But in the case of wolves, they were transplanting them back into their native environment so that they could provide important ecosystem services. Okay. So they took wolves that had basically disappeared from the area, reintroduced them so that they could manage elk populations. And how did that go? It was, uh, I think, a work in progress for a while. Ah, there it is. So um, it's, it's really not a failed experiment. <laughs> yeah. It's a work in progress. Exactly. <laughs> I could be a politician with this kind of like rewording of things. Just misdirect you. Exactly. No, no, we can't give up on the project yet. It mm-hmm. hasn't yielded results. <laughs> so when they transplanted way too many elk, <laughs> elk running around everywhere. When they transplanted the wolves back into that ecosystem, they they're perturbing the system mm. pretty strongly. I mean, yeah, you just told me about a group of scientists saying <laughs> we need to kill this animal. Yeah. So, but after a long enough time, um, the elk population did kind of stabilize with the wolves, and then there was relatively uh, stable top-down control mm. of elk populations, and therefore protection. a shit ton of elk and wolves, <laughs> yeah. and now you just got two problems. Yeah. <laughs> this is going horribly wrong. <laughs> so, yeah, there are certainly instances where reintroductions go poorly, <laughs> but but um, to my knowledge, anyway, the, the Yellowstone reintroduction went Relatively well, okay. but you know, if it's you're not gonna, the doomsday scenario but, I'm portraying, the Midwest isn't just covered in wolves yeah. and elk. But to be fair, that is an issue where if you, you got my trans- vacation plans, <laughs> yeah, if you transplant animals into an area where humans have been living for a while and they don't expect them to be there, especially mm. something like a wolf, where they might think, "Well, <laughs> they're going to eat my kid." Yeah. yeah, you know, there's certainly a. It's going to drop the property value. <laughs> yeah, so I think there were plenty of ranchers that you know were worried about. Wolves eating their kids' faces and stuff, and justifiably sure, so. as wolves are known to do. <laughs> yeah. They'll eat a face or two. Yeah, but um, but that's kind of the job of the scientists that do that project is to make sure that the reasoning behind that movement mm-hmm. is um, is well communicated to the people in the community, and that it sounds like they actually thought it through and they didn't just airdrop wolves haphazardly. <laughs> I was just picturing some rancher with the good intentions just destroys the entire experiment, kills all the wolves. It's like, look what I did, guys. They tried to make a comeback. Yeah. I stopped them. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it's a it takes a careful touch to make sure that it goes correctly. Sure. But, but in the case of the baboon troop, I think they as they uh, said in the interview, they transplanted them for they transplanted them more for research purposes and I think that because the system um, was able to support that transplant without much perturbation. Mm-hmm. There at least wasn't, you know, a lot of outcry from people in the area about transplanting okay. baboons. Sure. But but still, it is a pretty heavy <laughs> undertaking to transport a baboon troop to a new location. Yeah, that sounds like quite a few. But how many baboons are in a troop? Um, I think you can have somewhere uh, upwards of like twenty five individuals. Okay, so not troop. like you could put them all in a school bus. Yeah, like everybody would have a seatbelt sort of yeah, situation. Probably. Okay, yeah, probably. Gotcha. <laughs> I'm just trying to paint an image. <laughs> yeah. All right, but we'll cut back to Molly and Leah now and see what they have to say. So Shirley moved all the baboons, like literally in cages, just put them all in trucks and (laughs) brought them all down here and um, put them on the ranch where we're living now. And then... What, from what she said, there was one night when a herd of elephants showed up where they usually sleep on top of the rocks, and they ran, like, kilometers away. Wow. So now we have to go to where they are located at this point. So that <laughs> was crazy. a long time ago, and since then they've branched out a lot and formed new troops and spread out a little bit more, so their range is a little bigger. But, yeah, it's like a 
40 minute drive in the morning to get mm-hmm. to where they are wow. it's too bad <laughs> yeah. i think they we could just i mean it would have been like a 10 minute drive potentially we could have even walked to work back in the day ridden camels <laughs> <laughs> wow. so how did each of you figure out or hear about this job or get involved with this project i found it totally on a whim i was just looking for jobs in africa basically mm-hmm. um and ended up on the primate database job mm-hmm. search and it was like the last job on the last page of the wow. last database that I was willing to look at and I just sent in a resume and, and a cover mm-hmm. letter and thought this sounds crazy mm-hmm. and so have you worked in Africa before no mm-hmm. but you have right Molly yeah so right out of college I um, started working for a hyena project um, and in Kenya and I just saw that on a on a job board um, but then once I was here, it was pretty easy to figure out like who, what sorts of projects were around and mm-hmm. what research was going on. And um, I met people from this project, and they came to visit us in hyena camp, and then I came to visit the baboon project um, just for a fun little break in work. And it just was a really good field site, and it seemed really fun. So mm-hmm. I contacted their boss and asked if I could work for her. <laughs> <laughs> and Jess, how did you get started out here? Um, so I actually worked at Impala last summer as a research assistant uh, while I was still in undergrad. And so when I graduated, I thought that I really wanted to come back to Kenya and work um, as a research assistant again because I love it here. And so I kind of just looked at projects that were in Kenya um, and which ones interested me. And um, yeah, I just applied to a bunch. And I saw this one for the Baboon Project that it was in Laikipia, which is obviously where Impala is. So it became my first choice because I, I love it here and I wanted to come back. I think it's funny how, like, one of the marketable skills that you have when for applying for these kind of jobs is just, like, I can handle field work. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, it's like I can handle myself, and I yeah. don't get freaked out easily. Yeah. I was talking to some people in my department at school when I was applying for this job, trying to figure out what even to put in a cover letter, how to sell myself, and they were, like, basically just tell them that if, if the river floods and your car washes away, you'll be okay. <laughs> you'll be able to handle it. You won't get homesick and fly home. Yeah, it is crazy. It's a different sort of skill set. Speaking completely as an outsider here, I have to say that if if my car got washed away in a flood and I got stranded in the middle of the African savanna, going home would seem like a very reasonable response to me. (laughs) (laughs) If that option existed. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I can't remember what I put in like my application to uh to start out here as an intern because I was in the same position that uh, Jess was right I worked as a research assistant for Todd Palmer for a summer and I think I basically just said that like when I was here as a student I was kind of just squeezed every last bit of effort out of the students working with me in a research project uh, as I could. And I was like, all right, that's <laughs> yeah, that's good yeah. enough. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's interesting that a lot of the skills are just like real life skills. Like mm-hmm. I can change a tire, and mm-hmm. right, if something catastrophic happens, I'm not going to freak out. Yeah, it's interesting right. that those are relevant skills rather than like here are all these courses I've taken. Yeah, it's yeah. More about like who you are as a person almost. Yeah, I think people skills self. are really important out here too. Yeah, like if you oh, can yeah. schmooze or, or sweet talk or whatever your way mm-hmm. out of a, out of <laughs> right. problem or into the good graces of somebody. Yeah. that's like it's really valuable. Even in my interview, Ayla was like, "Our can you schmooze?" Oh, but she was yeah, <laughs> and she was like. Do you like Cards Against Humanity? You know? Yeah. Do you enjoy games? Do you yeah. mind yeah. being around people all the time? Yeah, can you live with just a few people for a year and right. not go crazy? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There were almost no questions, do you like baboons? Yeah. It was almost irrelevant. <laughs> yeah. I remember my interview with Kay for the Hyena Project. It was like, most of it was her telling me, like, it's not very fun. Like, it's boring. Are you okay that it's boring? Do you know that? Yeah. Like, it's yeah. rough. Like, yeah. you just have to stare at hyenas for yeah. eight hours a day. And I was like, yeah, I can do it. I can yeah. do it. I promise. <laughs> and then I had, and then I, like, wrote her an email afterwards being like, I can do, like, I was just, like, trying so hard to convince her that, like, I wasn't gonna die. Like, yeah, that I, I could. <laughs> yeah. 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 And then for this one, it's like, can you hike all day? Are you sure? Are you sure? Yeah. Are you sure you want <laughs> really to hike sure. all day? Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, that was an interesting part of the interview because, you know, my instinct is like, absolutely, I want to hike all day and mm -hmm. stare at baboons all day. Mm -hmm. And then when I got here, I was like, wait, do I? Like, can I handle it? And, you know, I can. But there was a moment where I was like, oh, no. What if I can't? Mm -hmm. If you can't, like, mentally handle hiking and staring all day, then you can't. Yeah. It's hard to imagine what it's actually going to be like until you're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> I you love can't it. mentally oh, handle it. <clears throat> yeah, like, just spending your whole life thinking about animals and, like, how often they scratch themselves. So I'm hearing a lot about hiking and watching baboons and apparently counting how many times they scratch themselves. I can only assume a lot, but what 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 kind of study is actually going on here? So far, we've hiked, watched baboons, put them in trucks, and driven them to a different part of their range. What uh, what's the end goal here? I think a lot of these projects that are studying highly social animals, um, they're recording kind of small pieces of qualitative data, such as how much to any two given individuals or any specific number of individuals in the troop are interacting with one another. Um, and that includes kind of small indicators of like affection or aggression. So if they are scratching like another baboon or picking fleas out of their fur or grooming them, um, that is an indicator of positive social interaction. Mm. And then if there are displays of aggression, so um, either fights or just like uh, Bearing teeth, yeah, that sort of thing. Exactly. Then those would indicate that two given individuals might not be on the best of terms within mm. their little mini community. Okay. And the um, the reason why that's important is that if you record all that data and then you can use network models um, with uh, various coding softwares to basically generate a social network for that baboon troop and you can figure out which individuals are really central to it so okay. it have a lot of positive interactions with those around um, which individuals are like very are placed very far apart on that mm -hmm. network so um, and this not only helps us understand how like social networks develop in animals in general like this does have some transferability to humans mm -hmm. but also like if you're trying to figure out um, let's say that 20 years down the line, this baboon troop needs to be broken up because of pressure that it's exerting on the community. Maybe mm. they're like causing too much damage for some specific plant species and they need to do another transplant, but this time to protect other species. Then they'll know which individuals are actually more compatible within that community. So we're spying on them. Yeah. That's, I mean, exactly. we're, we're just, if you were to just, just slip in like four in town instead of baboon troop, we, we would just be spying on exactly. Just in case. In case we need to do something in the future. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm fine with it. I have no moral, <laughs> moral objection to that. I was just checking to make sure. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. You I know guess, what? Uh, all information, I guess, is good information. That is a funny way to think about it in that I'm giving you the same defense that like the NSA gives, where they're like, we'll just use it for good purposes, guys. <laughs> we just want the information. We're not going to act on it. Yeah. We just want to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. So we're recording all their phone calls. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because a lot of the... Well, a lot of the same technology goes into analyzing human social networks and animal social networks, or at sure. least the same theory. So um, it is interesting that the application for it in the human sphere it generally has a less than good connotation. Mm. Um, and uh, in terms of analyzing social network construction and development in animals, it um, at least at the moment, the... I think the scientific community is more geared to understanding just how sociality even develops because we still don't really quite understand why or well how early humans or predecessors to humans coalesced into groups and how our, our structure developed and what is like natural for our society to develop into. Yeah, I mean, uh, if the theory is holding true that uh, some apes are going into their Stone Age period of development, they are going to have a weird evolutionary development just being on the same planet as humans. Exactly. Like, hey, we're basically you plus ugh, 
uh, couple hundred thousand years. <laughs> there was just a story on NPR uh, this last week. Um, I think it was picked up by like the Daily Mail in the UK, which isn't like... Oh, that's, that's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, Instantly but, lose credibility, yeah, even I if they just reprint it. They took a British study and kind of like gave it a horribly misleading headline. What? But they that's shocking. Yeah. From the Daily Mail, you say? <laughs> they basically said that... Um, a study found that chimpanzees were developing religion, which the... <laughs> of course, that's, I would have guessed that was a Daily Mail article. <laughs> the study itself was actually saying that um, chimpanzees were showing some sort of association, or some sort of interaction with part of the environment that didn't make any sense in like a survival point mm-hmm. of view. They were um, throwing rocks at a tree and then like collecting rocks in the tree, and they started to think that maybe it's them like um, taking... Uh, like friction that they've accumulated in their community, or like a sense of animosity towards yeah. another individual, and they were literally venting their frustration at it. Well, tree. let's let's tell these uh, these scientists not to throw stones in glass houses. <laughs> yeah. All right, humans do plenty of weird stuff. Yeah, that even if you explained it to somebody, wouldn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Like so, that's fine. Yeah, throw rocks in trees. I guess that's <laughs> harmless. I, I suppose. So, yeah, Molly, you're six months into your stint, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, did you have any expectations for this job that are that turned out to be really far off or anything that surprised you about working out here? Um, for, for this job, I think I had a pretty good idea going into it because I had already been in Kenya for a year and I had visited the field site, so, mm-hmm. and I knew a lot of people who had worked for this project and I talked to them about it. I think the first time I did a full year in the field I mean because you get the same thing like I and in undergrad when I would do shorter field seasons I did some field seasons actually um like in Michigan that were a lot more isolated than this Mm -hmm. um you know like no running water or power at all or cell phone service at all um but they were much shorter and I didn't realize that when you were in the field for a year, like, I just didn't realize how intense it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Like, it gets a little monotonous. Like, it's hard to explain to people that, like, you do the same thing every day. Like, you get up at the like, same time. so exciting. You live in Africa. Yeah. That's not... But you get up at the same time every day, and you go to the same places, and you look at the same animals, like, literally the same individuals that you see every day. And, and then you go home at the same time and, like, eat the same food and all of that. And... It's like a really steady routine with like not a lot of variation. And so like the small things that change become really important. Yeah. So like if the only variation in your day is like what the baboons did, yeah. like that becomes the most important thing. So like your whole life becomes focused on like pretty small details about like the lives of the animals you're studying mm-hmm. or like what mongoose you saw that day or like yeah. Yeah, we were talking about what we would possibly say when we talked today and we were like well our stories are just kind of like jobby hiccup today (laughs) yeah really funny yeah ollie jumped into a tree and the branch broke and he looked really embarrassed and it was really funny yeah Yeah. exactly i think i've talked to to like seven or eight pairs of scientists now or like trios or you know groups that i've interviewed and um a lot of the yeah interesting stories that they bring up are like vehicle mishaps yeah, mm-hmm. or like just animals doing something weird or just something really strange in the field yeah. that outside of this little bubble here or like the you know for me like the 30 ant plant mutualist studying people <laughs> like nobody gives a shit about yeah, that right, stuff right. but it's it seems so interesting when you're out here in this like isolated environment yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Totally. we're so invested in like who's hanging out with who like yeah. Like, Unity and Phantom was moving the other day, and that mm-hmm. was really exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They haven't hung out in a while. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that Emojis was, like, the most exciting thing that happened yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, so can you, can you actually explain this anecdote oh. a bit? Like, so... Uh, so you guys actually, I don't think we've talked about this yet, but you actually, like, can recognize um, baboons in, in the troop by, like... Appearance. Individually, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so you actually have identified, like... 
friendships or, or definitely you know. yeah mm-hmm. yeah our boss is really interested in um the importance of male female friendships in anubis babins because um they seem like they're they play a bigger role than in like yellow babins and other species um which makes like female female relationships particularly like sisters and mothers and daughters relationships not quite as important socially so that's a big focus of the project um but basically, um, uh, we have this baby named Phantom, um, who's a subadult male, but um, he's getting—he's getting big. He's taking over the troop. He's taking so. over, um, and he was really like best friends with um, a female named Unity, who. So when I first got here, when I learned Phantom and Unity, like I recognized them because they were together. They're just—they were together all the time. So we named them Funity, <laughs> and <laughs> they just spent every second together but then unity got pregnant and we're not sure if it's phantoms it might be phantoms but um and then there was a big consort over another sub-adult um female um that got kind of violent um with the with all the males and um the top male dobby got injured and phantom took over the troop so he's the alpha male now but he doesn't seem to really know what to do He's a little confused, and he, um, yeah, he's not doing such a great job of it. He's not often, like, in the center of the troop, like, <laughs> kind of overseeing things. He's often just on his own, yeah. wandering around the perimeter. He kind of, like, follows females around and just isn't isn't super involved <laughs> as he should be. Um, <laughs> but, like, after she got pregnant and he took over, he stopped hanging out with Unity, and it was really sad. Right. They they weren't friends anymore. Wow. So Dated by his power. I know. Yeah. yeah. That he was too he was too distracted, chasing the other females around, and also probably maybe because she was pregnant. But yesterday they were hanging out for like a good chunk of the morning, grooming each other. That was really nice. And he was grooming her a lot. Like the females groom males a lot more than the males groom females. Um, it feels but, so human like. Yeah. You know. I don't know. Not that I've actually ever groomed a man and then had him not groom me back. <laughs> but it seems, somehow it seems to make sense on a level of, like, <laughs> not to be sexist. <laughs> but the females will groom and groom and groom and go through every hair so carefully and pick out every little thing. And then the dude just kind of, like, brushes some hairs. And it's like, <laughs> okay, you're done. Uh-huh. So half-assed. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think we should start rating the quality of grooming. I know. That would be interesting data. So so you guys are saying for me to be successful with women, I shouldn't take my cues from (laughs) Gavin. Absolutely not. Maybe not. All right. Good to know. I shouldn't only groom them when they're swelling. (laughs) Okay, so a lot to unpack there. First of all, it is staggering how this is so similar to, like, if you were a Russian spy looking in on a small Midwestern town. Like, this would be what your reporting would sound like. I go out every day, I write down who's talking to who, I just see how everything's going, just write everything down, just observe and report. And that's a little odd. It's just a little strange. Like, just picturing, okay, these baboons are throwing rocks in trees and, uh, just going about their days and apparently, uh, dating. So, are are baboons dating? I think we need to cut the important question. So, I don't know if we can directly address whether they're dating or not, but what we could say is that there is a ton of promiscuity in baboon societies, both um, from the female and from the male point of view. And so this can, it's really interesting though that they have promiscuity because they use it as sort of a mechanism to like protect their young at times. So for instance, um, females will mate with four or five different males while they're ovulating. And then um, they will basically, you know, they'll conceive a child, but then, they will then have all of these different suitors that are at least partially committed to Mm. this baby. And so um, it's interesting in in that it kind of prevents those males from knowing if it actually is their kid. Which prevents them from eating the baby. Exactly. Yeah, I thought that's where we were headed there. Yeah, (laughs) and it also um, kind of 
makes it so that all of these different males will hopefully chip in and help provide resources for the kid. So, um, but then the males also have promiscuity just because they want to have as many as orgasms feel great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like there's no need to justify yeah. it. It's fine. We exactly. All I assume it's the same through the animal kingdom for everything except ducks. <laughs> yeah. But, in which it's horrifying. I just imagine them ejaculating pure hatred. But <laughs> yeah. That's beside the point. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes they're sweet. There are some male female friendships that are really sweet and. They hang. Yeah. They just spend a lot of time together and groom each other a lot. Mm-hmm. And then there's some male. Like Ollie is a terrible groomer. Yeah. He doesn't try. He pretends. He just like uses his finger to just like poke them. Just like flicks at yeah bits. <laughs> is is he like more attractive on the baboon scale or less attractive? Like does he should he be working harder? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting. He's he seems like he's pretty successful. Mm. Yeah, he's but trying really. I don't hard. think anyone likes him that much. Mm. Yeah, that's that's anthropomorphizing. Yeah, bad science, whatever. He's right. like all style, <laughs> no substance. Yeah, yeah. right. Bit. They're kind of scared of him, but yeah, he's a little bit. He seems kind of like intimidating. A jerk. Yeah, okay. that's what he wants because he's mean about it. But mm-hmm. no one actually likes him that much. But they have to submit to him a little. Yeah, the way he walks around, he's got a lot of bravado. But I don't like him very much. He does. He kind of swaggers around. Yeah, he does he swagger. Does. But lately, he's been he's been trying to. I don't know if he's trying to act like a good dad. I don't. That's, that's reading into a lot of it. But he's like really into this one baby named Radish, and he'll just like won't leave Taylor alone. Taylor's the mom. And he'll just follow her around and try to like, grunt and baby inspect Radish, but he like can't handle him, and he just picks him off the ground and then like drops him, like two feet. Like he turns him upside down yeah. and drops him. And he's just, not like, trying over to do it to be mean. It's like he he's trying to be like a dad almost. He's like, let me hold the baby. I can do this. It's but like yeah, kind like of just ends up flipping the baby around. He's <laughs> a competent dad, right? Wow. Like seeing the males, seeing the big males try to either groom or just interact with the babies is we've compared it to like seeing a dad try to sew you know like it's very unwieldy and like i just my hands are too big for this thing and i just can't and then the baby just falls onto the ground yeah (laughs) i resent that i'm i'm not the most hirstute man but i know how to sew it's not that hard (laughs) so strange when you see like when you see animals that are inept at like basic tasks mm-hmm. yes. and especially a fully grown male <laughs> yeah. i mean you know it's one it's thing i'm like awkward yeah like i've seen you know baby elephants like face plant and, <laughs> yeah. and stuff it's like oh you're just learning right and their but, hands look so much like human hands yeah. that you think they must be very adept but then they're just kind of bumbling around about something definitely bumbling mm-hmm. yeah I think my favorite time of year is when all the termites start flying mm. out of the ground and the baboons love to eat them so you'll see just like <laughs> just them like bouncing in the fields like leaping into the air trying to catch the termites and they usually miss mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's so silly <laughs> it's yeah it's like seeing big males trying to like dance around in a tutu <laughs> That sounds like a terrible time of the year. Termites <laughs> flying out of the ground. For me, that's the apocalypse. <laughs> so, what they're referring to um, is like the time of year when male termites are doing their nuptial flights mm-hmm. and they're flying around trying to find female suitors. And so, it actually is like a great source of protein. Okay, no, yeah, I can I can get that, but, like, just the idea of, I'm assuming millions of termites flying out of the ground, that's that's hell. That's what that is. <laughs> yeah. That's what you're describing to me, that you're describing hell. <laughs> that's where I work every year. <laughs> that is, um, interesting what you said, Molly, about, like, anthropomorphizing mm-hmm. the animals, so <laughs> I actually, the first podcast I recorded out here was about that. So it's with this woman, uh, Beth Ann Merkel, who's a science communicator who is sort of doing a piece about um, 
the tortoise and the hare and how it's like a, a ubiquitous story for a lot of cultures and that um but it is like this perfect example of how we project human qualities onto animals that are like not accurate at all like we villainize hyenas yeah. probably because of the lion king but yeah um, baboons too because of tarzan yeah exactly yeah. so like um but when you're um but when you're studying something like baboons that are so i think like expressive and emotive mm -hmm. and, and so close to us it's really hard to not do that like yeah. when i go out in the field i, I study um ants that live on acacia trees and um and then an invasive species that displaces them and all i think of all five of the ant species that i study as having kind of personalities and, yeah. and quirks and and it, because i mean they have like this you know insects have that hive mind thing when they're social so they actually do kind of have a personality mm -hmm. to like the colony right. but um i constantly like catch myself doing that in the field like yeah. You know, being like, oh, yeah, you have a favorite ant species. Yeah, it's like yeah. you work so hard. You know? RV. Yeah. RV is my favorite ant. Yeah, um, big-headed ants are just these douchey, you know, yeah. like bullies that just moved in. But really, they're all just like autonomous insects that just <laughs> do what their like little nerve cord tells them to. Yeah, but it's hard to not do that. I think that's just how yeah. humans understand yeah. things. Yeah, it's just how you relate. And I think you have to when you're spending this much time. Right. Yeah. Like, Otherwise, with it's them. so flat. Like, yeah, if you. If you spent all day every day with baboons and like didn't care about their personalities yeah. or about like them as individuals, mm -hmm. I mean you would hate this job. You wouldn't Absolutely. do it. Absolutely. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, I just I just got here about a month and a half ago, and I remember my first few days. I obviously I already loved the baboons, but I didn't really know any of them. I couldn't mm -hmm. identify any of them yet, um, and those days felt like they lasted forever. Mm -hmm. Like you know, it felt like a twelve-hour day. And now that I can identify almost all of the adults. The days go by so much quicker because I'm so interested in what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And when I see, you know, this guy groom this baby, it's just like, it's just exciting. It's almost like it means watching something. Yeah, it means something, and so it makes the days go quicker. And I think it makes the work a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. It would be really hard if you didn't care, mm -hmm. and it's really hard not to anthropomorphize yeah. things. I think it's just the way we are. Our data collection doesn't really take that into account. Yeah. Otherwise, it could be a problem. <laughs> right. It doesn't really mess with mm -hmm. our data. Yeah, because you're not supposed to do it. I mean, it's unscientific and all of that, but. It's just, you just couldn't do it if you didn't you yeah. care about them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have to be a scientist and a human, <laughs> else you go crazy. Yeah, you do have to be able to just switch into that mode and, mm -hmm. and turn off, you know, the little low-level biases and stuff. Yeah, that I think especially when something, like, we've been, one of our, one of the females died and left an infant mm -hmm. who was transition. Um, so he's still an infant, not... He would have still been nursing if she hadn't died, but he was also kind of eating on his own, so he's okay. Um, but you see that happen, and he's hungry all the time, and he hangs out on the side of the troop and moans a lot, and just looks kind of skinny and a little bit, really his sad. hair's a little thin, and his eyes look kind of sunken. I mean, I don't know how much that's... Um, anthropomorphizing yeah. <laughs> but he looks but, sad but he looks like <laughs> really a little sad, sad baby yeah. and it's hard it's really hard yeah. when you see that yeah. to not I mean you want to like drop some food for him or like pick him up and just tell him it's going to be okay you know you feel emotionally invested and then there's a really hard line wait you just can't do anything yeah. Yeah. you can't involve yeah. do you um well I guess that's you know something that you really have to keep in check too when you get into uh, when you're actually in charge of projects, like if you're applying for grants or fellowships or anything, like you have to present science in this really sterile way that um, I don't know how I would do it if I were studying something really um, photogenic like baboons or lions or something like that. Like it's easy for me to write about like carbon dynamics of an ant colony, but like because it's just so far removed from. Or like yeah. you know day-to-day yeah. -day life but when you can see like friendships and and friction and stuff in a, another species in their social structure like i especially when yeah. that's what you you call it when you're yeah. actually look choosing to look at friendships yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. but there is controversy i don't know if controversy is the right word but debate. i think for debate particularly with primates or maybe just when you're studying so sociobiology that like about using the word friendship, should yeah. you call it something yeah. else? Are you projecting just by using that word, like right. all that kind of stuff? I mean, I haven't published in primatology or anything like that. I don't really know, but people 
I think there's a bias that some people think that if you if you talk like you care about your animals at all, it means that you can't be doing good science, which yeah. I don't think is true. I like to end the podcast asking people um, what they if they've found a Kenyan or Lycopia like spirit animal. Mm. It can be. It doesn't have to be your study animal. It usually isn't. <laughs> right. mm. Mine, I think, is a hyena. I'm sorry, Molly. <laughs> um, so I never studied hyenas, but um, when I first came to Kenya. I ran into a hyena when I was walking to the bathroom and I it scared the shit out of me but it was also like the coolest thing I'd ever seen and so every time we would go on a game drive we'd see these hyenas everywhere and nobody else cared about them at all everyone just thought they were you know kind of like from the Lion King they were like just kind of weird no one really wanted to see them no one really cared this isn't why I identify with them but um yeah I just got really interested in them and the more I read about them the more they just seemed like the coolest animal and no one really cares about them um yeah, I mean, they're matriarchal, like, the females are kind of in power, and I like that, I think, you know, mm-hmm. feminism. Um, yeah, I just <laughs> think they're really cool, they are kind of, like, scrappy, they're, like, you know, they're very powerful, but people kind of underestimate them a little mm-hmm. bit, mm-hmm. and I think maybe I identify with that. I just think they're really cool, and it's all girl power, so, yeah. It's awesome. You're up, Molly. <laughs> I don't know, I've never thought about this. I know, I've been sitting here racking my brain, going through every animal. I even jumped to birds. That's how desperate I was. No. (laughs) Strange. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. I mean, Eland. Eland. No. You're the only person I've ever met who loves Eland. I mean, I love Eland. That doesn't mean I am an Eland. So why do you you love Eland? They're just so fun looking. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're just so big, and I feel like if you rode around on one, it would just be like riding a bed. Like, you could just lie (laughs) down on their back, and they would just take you everywhere. Everywhere. But I don't want to be in Eland. They're kind of scaredy cats. Yeah. They were super high flight distance. If you want to be a really low flight distance animal, you could be one of those cows that walks in the road <laughs> and blocks up like traffic. Just doesn't give a shit. Yeah. Anything. That charged us. I do love Oryx too. Hmm? That cow that charged us. The demon cow. The demon cow with the eyes. <laughs> That's probably pretty accurate. I don't know. I think, not, I think about spirit animals all day. I think a lot about who I want to be my mother baboon or my grandpa baboon but not who I would be I really like hartebeest I don't know why other people don't or maybe they do but I feel like it's always the animal that I'm like look hartebeest especially in the Mara I was with my dad and I was like look at the hartebeest look at the hartebeest and he was like oh yeah they're cool that's that's a big the graceful antelope they're, but it's, they're so it's really strange. They're not really on Impala. Um, just here. Like, I don't know if there was like a sickness that hit the population here, but apparently in the last five or ten years, um, there used to be just as high density of, of uh, hartebeest here as El Karama or El Jogi or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't aware of that until I started working off-site. The first summer that I was here, I worked just on Impala. And when I went to El Karama, it's like I saw hartebeest everywhere. Hmm. And I, and then I found out that yeah something has just wiped them out here. That's so strange. Weird. And like Weird no to have one area. Yeah. With no density. Yeah, it's like literally like within the you know arbitrary bounds of right. Impala. Super They're arbitrary. not found. Like That's so strange. Yeah, you can. I saw one of them this summer on Impala, just like Weird. a lone guy wow. with a shitty beat up horn up on the airstrip. They're really cool though. I like how they just seem so quiet. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just there. there. They just yeah. watch you. They're mm-hmm. nice. Yeah, tranquil, graceful. They're not in anyone's face. Mm-hmm. They have really cool horns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think you could be a head of Thank you. Yeah. I saw one of their skulls one time, and that was super cool. Yeah, they're really cool looking. Mm-hmm. I was like, because <laughs> usually if, when you see an antelope skull, it's like you have to kind of like, I don't know look at it for a bit and be like, I think it might be this. I just saw, like, looked at it and immediately knew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Such a distinct shape. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're cool looking. I think they're really cool. Well, maybe, uh, you can keep thinking about spirit animals now we've, like, planted the, the seed. The seed. Got the itch. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for, yeah, sitting down and lending me 35 minutes of your time. That's fun. So, Thank yeah, you. Yeah, that was fun. Okay, okay, so, I mean, they kind of brought up the problem 
right there with uh, the anthropomorphizing question of uh, like how scientific and professional versus keep yourself interested because it sounds like half the job is to just rotely write down every single thing that happens. The other half of the job is to construct a narrative around the troop, and that requires you to infer certain things about their behavior and what it means. So how do you decide the difference there? Part of the trick is towing that line between collecting data in, in a complete and representative way, but also figuring out where human biases exist and where your sampling regime where your sampling methods might um, might cause you to think that there are results that aren't actually there. So um, like Emily, who is on the Zebra Research mm. uh, Zebra podcast that we did earlier, she's been working nonstop trying to um, take a massive data set and make sure that it is actually like uh, all qual- quantitative data mm. and, and very um, clearly falls into um, only things that can be measured and proven. Exactly. Yeah, yeah and doing away with um, measurements that might have been influenced by like uh, random conditions of the day. Sure. So, um, and but then again, when you do that kind of data analysis or like fixing up the data, you have to be careful to um, justify those pairings that you make because. Um, I mean, we see this with studies of, like, worldwide climate change, where if you are adjusting your data because, like, a thermometer model has been shown over time to, you know, have issues, Mm -hmm. then that is a point where a critic could point to your work and say, like, oh, this isn't, um, you don't really have fastidious results. You um, have altered the data. Exactly. So, um, So with these behavioral studies, it's especially important to try to have a data collection method that is as just um, as unbiased as possible and then when you are analyzing the data to keep in mind that there are just inherent biases to it. Sure. So for instance like um, in well in any of these animals we're only seeing the behavior that they express when we're around. Yeah. So as they say during the interview they go home. Exactly. Like they're not there all the time. Yeah. So, a really cool study that I heard about um, that was done on manatees was using drones. um, Manatees sound way easier to study. (laughs) So, um, there was a recent... Sitting in a lounge chair (laughs) with some binoculars. There's recent studies been going on with with drones where they um, have launched them and found that manatee behavior changes drastically when they're around boats, which is like, duh. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's like their only predator. (laughs) So, the... um, so, you know, it, it just shows that we have to keep in mind um, that all of our behavioral research is through a, a lens. Mm. And in some cases, like where you study networks in a zoo, if you're just trying to figure out how like a little mini community of wild dogs, mm. how they're interconnecting and how they're forming bonds and how you might eventually split them up and send them to different zoos, like that's fine. And that's a really um, scientific and, and yet... Uh, has real world applications mm. way, way of doing that kind of research but but it has real world applications insofar as it tells you how wild dogs will behave when they're in an environment surrounded by tons of different human beings all the time exactly okay so with all these behavior studies I think it's just important to keep that caveat in mind mm. and um, and it'll tend to get well, I, I pre- you know would hope that it will get better over time as we develop methods that are less sure. invasive or obtrusive in the animal's lifestyle. And that well, yeah, look at look at the drone solution. Um, I mean, a- absent the presence of boats, that's a pretty good. Uh, I mean, especially I cannot get over how easy it would be to study a manatee. Like, oh my, you could do it on a paddleboard. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you, you could just tie a rope to its tail and just sit in a raft (laughs) and just float along after it sipping beer (laughs) eating a hoagie (laughs) I mean I think that there are some scientists that do honestly wouldn't shock me (laughs) but but yeah but then again back to your whole spy analogy now we're introducing drones (laughs) that's that's a good point it's only a matter of time before some hot handed general is saying those monkeys are looking a little dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Pull the plug.
Cool. Relocate. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, I think that's a good place to end, and I'm glad to have you back for the yeah, final, final episode of the season. Absolutely. But, all right. Thanks, Mike. No problem, Mike. And thank you for listening. Egotones will be back in the fall of 2018 with more episodes. But for now, we're off to the field to do some more research on plant physiology, ant-plant interactions, and various parts of the ecosystem that intersect with that area of study. Some minor housekeeping from the last episode. Um, I mentioned that Matt Snyder was a student at UNC, which is actually not correct. He's a student at NC State. And he also just pointed out that they collect data from their hippo tags via VHF frequencies, and they don't actually physically retrieve the tags. So thanks for keeping me honest, Matt. If you want to learn more about the research that our lab does, you can check out thepalmerlab.com or savannaecology.com. And there will be links for both of those in the description for this episode. For access to past Ecotones episodes, make sure to check us out on iTunes or on SoundCloud. All right, signing off for now. This is Pat Milligan. And this has been Ecotones. They ain't teaching taxes in school. It don't even matter, I was acting a fool. But who would think the raps would turn into racks? Don't matter, matter of fact, kick it happening to you. Scars on my head, I'm the boy who lived. The boy love playing when the boy too sick. Reclining on a prayer, I'm declining in help. I've been lying to my body, can't rely on myself, but no. Last year, I got addicted. Stop forgetting my name and start to miss my chance. LA for four months, end up leaving right back. I'm in love with my city, bitch. I'm sleeping my hat. Uh, I felt hog tied ever since my dog died. He lit an 84, damn, that's a long ride. I know he up there, he just sit anyway. I'll be racing up the stairs, I'ma get to the gate singing. Arguments, experience, they get deeper than a baritone.